Welcome to the Natural History Cupboard. Come on in. And welcome back to the Natural History Cover podcast, the place where the weird and wonderful parts of the natural world come together. I'm your host, Gareth, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Aaron. Aaron, say hi. Hello. Hello. I would say, what have you been up to this week? But I've literally just been out with you this week to go and do stuff that we were both out doing. Yes, so, uh, it was very cool. Yeah, um, well... For those for those of you who are interested listeners, there, there will be an episode coming up over our New Year's uh, for our New Year's episode where we've gone for a bit of a ramble. Um, we went fossil hunting and we've taken you along with us. Now, some of the audio didn't come out as planned. Unfortunately, Aaron, the audio on the beach didn't come out as good as it could have. Um, oh, really? Yeah, we're going to try and fix some of that. If not, we'll try and edit some bits and pieces in. Right. Essentially, we've we've gone for a bit of a ramble, taking you on a bit of a, a tour of one of our favourite fossil hunting sites in the UK and uh, had a bit of fun. Um, apart from the, the one injury, uh, my other half fell over whilst we were on the beach. So she's okay. She's got a bit of a, a, um, a bad knee out of it. But uh, yeah. That's always the risk, I suppose, you take yeah, when it comes to things like I'm this. I'm glad so. she's okay, though. Yes, yeah. She did She did go down quite hard when it came to uh, to falling. Um, she, I said yeah. to her, though, she went down really quietly because I was still talking to her, and then I turned around and she was gone. <laughs> this is true, yeah. So um, you can actually, well, I think you can actually hear that on the audio. I'll have to, I'll have to listen back and see how that goes, although I don't think she'd be happy if I included her going down and probably swearing uh, in the process. So, um, yeah, that's, well, that's pretty much what I've been up to. Um, what then you've been up to at that? Is there anything it's, else you it's want what to I've add been up to? Um, I'm trying to think. Well, well, it was a really, really nice, uh, really nice uh, few hours. And, the, and then this afternoon, I've actually kind of carried that theme across. Um, my little girl for her birthday, she got this, um, what looks like a rock, but there's actually like plaster that's been filled in a plaster, plaster that's been put in a mold to mm-hmm. look like a rock. And inside there's a fossil and you get different fossil. You don't know. It's like a mystery. Ah, yeah. I believe it came from a shop called Alley Hop, but I'm not 100% oh, sure on that. Oh, Alley Hop. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. an amazing shop for just bizarre random things. Weird stuff. With yeah, like a random, cow out random the front. Things. That's right. That's yeah. the one. Yeah. So, um, uh, so me and her did that. We it's it comes with a little wooden like kind of little wooden sharpened kind chisel of tool. thing. Yeah, yeah, chisel, and <laughs> um and a, uh, a a hard bristle paintbrush effectively, and uh, yeah, it took it took time. Not not like not a long time. Like it 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 took the time I imagined it should have taken. Because it's very fine and it's very like she was, she was going at she was so keen she was going at really like like scraping it back and then once she'd she'd broken some of the uh, in inverted commas rock uh, she'd uh, she got the brush and would very delicately but she was so good I recorded it for <laughs> not for the very podcast cool. but just just for myself because it was it was really good to see her concentrating and then she got the fossil parasol par- parasolophus at the end and she was um. She's over the moon. Hmm. Yeah. Little I'll, I'll you, at the end for all the effort. 
I'll tell you something. Um, years ago, when I used to do the dinosaur education stuff for the, uh, hmm. the wildlife park and and that, and um, there was in one of the the sort of cheap shops, the works. Uh, they were doing a bunch of those sort of things, those, you know, oh, like yeah. fake fossils. But they had in them actually halfway decent uh, plastic replica teeth and claws and things like that, cool. which were definitely worth it. And they were cheap. So I went in one day and bought a bunch of these because they were perfect to use for students to come in and handle and everything. And so what I did, brought them home, chucked them in a bowl of water, let them dissolve and then just picked out the bits afterwards. So uh I, I've I've bought those things before, but I've cheated. So mm. purely because I, I was not gonna sit there for ages and dig these things out when I knew I could just throw them in a thing of water and uh, pull them out. Yeah, no, if I I mean I am I wasn't going for the education value, to, uh, the entertainment. Yeah, I was I was going for the um for edutaining and trying yeah. to uh, trying to encourage her to focus on something and put effort into something and reap the reward yeah, of that it's effort. Good. It's good. Uh, and she did really well. I was really happy. Kind of like this show, a block of fake rock with some nuggets of interesting stuff hidden in, in there as well. You know. <laughs> so shall we shall we throw ourselves into a vat of water to stop dissolve it, start dissolving this and get into the news for this week, shall we? We'll get into the nitty gritty. Yeah. It's the news. Okay, well, we're into this week's news. Aaron, take us out. Every week, we are inundated with news coming out of the weird and wonderful world of natural sciences. And though we are but a small team, we want you, our fellow cupboard dwellers, to be kept up to date on the good, the bad and the extraordinary. So let's open up our natural history cupboard newsreel, where we've compiled some of the more interesting headlines, and then we'll dive on in. I think I've got the first one today. So, uh, and that comes to us from Live Science Online. And it brings us the news that great white sharks are hanging out in the twilight zone and scientists don't yet know why. Uh, new research details 12 species of large predatory fish, including sharks and tuna, uh, that spend time down at depths of 200 to 1,000 meters, a depth of the ocean known as the mesopelagic or twilight zone. Great white sharks were also found to regularly spend time beyond these depths in what's called the midnight zone, uh, which is between 1,000 and 3,000 metres. Now, how, when and where they access these depths actually remains a mystery, but researchers do suggest the environment is likely a vital one. Probably for hunting, I would have thought. Mm, Great white sharks hiding from orcas, maybe. (laughs) Maybe. You never know. Um, my one comes from the Hampshire and Isle, uh, Isle of Wight Wildlife Trust's Facebook page, and it's quite an interesting one. Uh, a rare sea slug has been recently discovered um, in Netley by one of their volunteers called a Warty Doris, which I think is a brilliant name for a sea slug. <laughs> um, and you can see why they give it the name the Warty Doris, because it's well, it's warty. I mean, I don't know whether it looks like a Doris, but it's a brilliant name for it. <laughs> um, it's the first verified record of this species in the UK. All right. So, one there. Yeah. Uh, and come to us from BBC Online. Sand lizards return to Heath after fire. 
A 2020 fire on Winfrith Heath that left an area twice the size of a standard football pitch in ruins may well have been the final nail in the coffin for the local population of sand lizards. But that has just changed as 24 of the little scamps have been released onto the heath now, with a further 150 to follow over the coming months. The project to restore the species highlights the importance of captive breeding programmes, as this is where the new bloodlines were sourced, proving once again that when correctly managed, a captive collection can act as a genetic reservoir and safeguard against extinction. Uh, mine from Time Out. Dot com, nope. which as far as I'm is a like a magazine um, for, other than the the chocolate bar. Uh, it is a healthy platypus has been discovered in urban waterways of Sydney for the first time since 1998. Mm. And it's um, it's made a lot of people's days. Uh, extensive DNA testing and research of several reported sightings in the Catty Creek catchment in the hills uh, district of Sydney's northwest. Researchers have managed to significantly for, uh, confirm the existence of one wild platypus just minutes away from urban development areas. The Catty Hills Environmental Network has been uh, trying to confirm the number of platypus sightings in the area since 2016. Now all of their hard work is paying off. The existence of healthy platypuses uh, in a creek system that is located close to urban developments is nothing short of wild and speaks volumes of how the ecosystems at Catty Creek are in fact thriving. Yeah, that's really good news. Um, because if I remember correctly, platypus are one of those species that are really sensitive to urbanization. Yes. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, we're going back to the BBC online. I say it because I don't like using the BBC, and I've got free articles from them this week, unfortunately. Uh, and this article is about blue whales. So the ocean giants return to safe tropical haven. This is the news that uh it it demonstrates a colossal win for conservation, to be honest, as footage logged in 2020 and 2021 of blue whales in the Indian Ocean has been followed up by recordings that have researchers hoping for breeding activity in the region. The endangered species was all but annihilated from the Indian Ocean in the 60s by the Soviet whaling fleet, uh, which is represents just one chapter in a story that saw 300,000 or more of these animals slaughtered in the Southern Hemisphere. Mm. Uh, it's good news that they're back. It's good um, news. My article's uh, connected to what we ended up doing today, Aaron. Um, although it would appear that this person was uh, consistently having a better day of it than we did. Oh, um, yeah. Unfortunately, though, I've actually lost the name of the uh, the the particular um, the source paper source um, because I did not write it down uh, when <laughs> I did this. So um, good reporting. Yeah, <laughs> it's the first time I've ever done that. Um, so huge rare uh, fossil discovered on the Isle of Wight. I mean, that should be of no shock uh, to anyone. Oh, yes. Isle of Wight is famous for its fossils. Uh, but uh, guide uh, Jack Wanfer uh, re uh, recovered a uh, giant ammonite from the lower green sands of the island's southwest coast. It's actually so big, it maxed out the scales, said the spokesperson for the group. It's a good 150 kilos or more. Yeah, this thing that he's got is, yeah, it's a considerable size. Ammonite. It's a monster, it's like, isn't it, that one? size of a tire. Uh, back in March, he discovered a huge 10,000-year-old Ice Age horse skull washed up on the island's beach as well. 
Uh, it's definitely the biggest ammonite uh, Jack has ever recovered, said a spokesperson for the, uh, the fossil hunting group that these guys work with. So, yeah, this is one of those people who annoyingly finds absolutely everything. <laughs> <laughs> Not jealous at all. Mm, well... I'm afraid he's going to be jealous of my la- uh, my main article. So uh, flicking back on over, unfortunately, again to the BBC online. Lundy Island wild bird numbers soar. A project to rid the island of rats has seen its efforts repaid in spades. The island, home to 95% of England's Manx shearwaters, has seen the species increase from 600 in 2001 to 25,000 this year. A similar period also saw a rise in puffins from a grizzly 13 individuals to now hosting 1,335. Storm petrels as well, which are a new addition to the island habitat, are numbering 150 pairs and counting. The project and its results stand in stark reminder of what can be achieved with a bit of purpose and community effort. Uh, Gareth, did you know that Lundy is the old Norse word for puffin? Yes. Yes, literally Puffin <laughs> Island is what it's Sorry. called. No, I think I, I think I was aware of that one because I think you told me that one. Yeah, yeah. No, it's good to it's good to hear. I've still yet to get to Lundy. I will do that. It's on my list. I would like to go to Lundy. Yeah, maybe we should do that one instead of going fossil hunting. Probably more <laughs> successful. <laughs> and all the basking so, sharks and puffins disappear mysteriously. They'll all they'll, they'll take they'll a day be trip back. Out. Yeah, they'll be back the day after. They'll be visiting Devon. Yeah. Um, so my final article uh, is from Biaza and also STV News. So I've definitely mm. got the the, uh, the source for this one. Good. It's a nice one to end the uh, the news articles on. A 104-year-old woman fulfills lifelong dream to feed giraffes at a zoo. Ah. Uh, Betty Croy celebrated her birthday at Edinburgh Zoo on Thursday by hand-feeding the giraffes. Uh, Betty Croy, who lives in Trinity Care Home in Edinburgh, celebrated her birthday uh, at Edinburgh Zoo on Thursday by hand-feeding the animals. Having worked as a nurse during World War II, uh, Mrs. Coy uh, also enjoyed travelling the world in her younger years with her husband, uh, but has now got to fulfil a lifelong dream of feeding the giraffes. And I do love articles like this for the simple reason. There's a picture of her next to a picture of a giraffe, and it says... Uh, Betty pictured left, just for those of you who were unaware <laughs> of what a person looks like or a giraffe looks like. Um, so there you go. Nice, nice fun one to end on there. Yeah. And that wraps it up for this week's Newsreel Instrument. Remember, if you guys at home have news articles and topics of interest you think we should cover, send them in. Uh, you can use any of the usual ways to contact us and you might see your chosen topic or news article covered here or in the main topic discussion. And that one is with me this week as we make myself and Gareth very jealous and hopefully the guy from Isle of Wight very jealous too. Uh, it comes to us from fizz.org online and it's the news that a fossil unearthed in Mongolia's Gobi Desert suggests some dinosaurs slept in the same position as modern birds. Now, if you have listened to us for any amount of time, you will know that we are infatuated with the fossil deposits of Mongolia, especially me. Uh, they constantly uh, unearth the best, um, most pristine preserved in the most ex- exquisite lifelike positions. Um, these fossils are just, they are the best fossils you'll ever see. It, the ones that you that spring to mind are 
for example, the the raptor and the protoceratops. That's a very famous one. Um, the battle di- battling dinosaurs. That one is from Mongolia. Um, the Linharaptor exquisitus, which is literally named exquisitus because of how exquisite the fossil was. That's Mongolia. This one's Mongolia, and so many others come from this area of the world. They're just always uh, exciting and stunning fossils to 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 see. And this one is no different. Uh, paleontologists and biologists from Hokkaido University, Hokkaido University Museum, North Carolina State University, and the Mongolian Academy of Sciences have discovered a previously unknown Alvarezsoridae uh, species that they have named Jacqueline-icus, um which means fast little dragon. The fossil, as you'd expect from Mongolia, like I said, is unique and beautifully preserved, but it also held another gift for the research team. The near-complete 3D subject appears to be sleeping. Uh, the Alvar- the Alvarezsoridae um, were previously thought to have actually been avian dinosaurs birds. Uh, They share many of the physiological traits with their bird cousins, including skeletal arrangements and body plans, as well as having enjoyed a similar evolutionary path. But they were reclassified as Manoraptoran dinosaurs, uh, a group that doesn't actually include birds, but is very closely related. The discovery was made at the Baron Goyot formation dig site i hope i've said that right uh in the mongolian gobi desert a place very high on the list of destinations that i really uh wish to see for its insane fossil finds uh this latest find dates back 71 million years um and the team's estimates suggest that in life the animal stood about a meter tall and weighed around 30 kilograms so you know relatively respectable sized um raptor. um But in death, the fossil depicts the creature folded in a position reminiscent of birds at rest, with limbs under the pelvis and its neck and tail wrapped around it potentially for comfort. Uh, The reason this is important is what it tells us about the behaviour of the dinosaur, because the reason that modern birds sleep like this is to maintain comfort and preserve heat. So the dinosaur mirroring such behaviour suggests that Manoraptorans too had to negotiate uh, maintaining warmth and comfort at night and probably um came up with essentially the same solution to very similar uh life pressures so yeah uh, that is a very short article uh because that, that, that's the end of it but it is a fantastic one nonetheless and i i, I highly recommend going and having a look and a read up on this the the um the research paper is linked at the bottom of the article like i say it's on fizz.org at the bottom of that article there's a link to the actual uh peer-reviewed study it's really good i really enjoyed reading it i thought it was probably a bit too heavy for our news segment um but also it in the article is included a paleoartistic interpretation of the animal in life in this position uh and it's really beautiful um really enjoyable to see yeah, it's a very, very um, pretty, pretty dinosaur to see in its sort of sleeping position. Mm. Yeah. And it's always interesting to get this kind of fossil. One thing that um, you've heard us say on the podcast before, and you'll hear us say again. In fact, I know you will because we said it today in recording that for the New Year's episode. Is that a lot of the times when you're looking for fossils? Yes, the charismatic fossil is always the, like a a 
identifiable dinosaur uh, bone. Uh, however, fossils of the animals themselves very rarely tell us much about the animal that is about their life biology. Uh, so coprolite fossilized poo is often a little bit more intriguing because you can tell more about what you know what the animal ate um what 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 was its diet comprised of and, and all sorts so it, it to find fossils of animals that are nearly complete and they're preserved in a life in a, in their life state in their life position uh and it offers a window into their life biology like this, in this case, how they slept, is really interesting. Um, I wish we could go out and get involved in that kind of thing. Like, even if what, it's just a trip like, to the Gobi Desert. Yeah, you know, <laughs> just vol volunteer for a, for a month or so, just to just to um, yeah, just see what we could find. It'd be nice. <laughs> Pipe dreams. Well, yeah. Indeed. So shall we uh, shall we move on to our next, in fact, Manoraptorian? Yes. It's the Creature Feature. Okay, well, we're into this week's Creature Feature. Now, Aaron, I want to start off this week's feature with a question for you. Excellent. Can, can you name me the bird with the shortest beak in the world? Uh, yeah, I can. It's, uh, it's the kiwi, I think. Well, yes. I mean, I, I knew that you probably were aware of this particular fact because I've probably bored you with it before. Um, but also because it is one of those sort of random bits. And also, you know, that's the that's the title of this week's episode. So it's a little bit of guesswork <laughs> goes into to that, but not much. Um, but yes, you are right. It is the Kiwi. Um, you might think it had been a finch or a wren, possibly. But you would, would be in fact be wrong because the shortest beak would technically go to the kiwi. And that's mm -hmm. because so the way that beaks are generally measured uh, by ornithologists is from the nostrils to the tip of the beak. Well that's this, right, yeah. This particular animal, the kiwi, is is in fact well, it's its nostrils are at the tip of its beak. So technically it's got the shortest bill in the world. Mm. But we all know that that's just a technicality and, and not actually um, very much in the way of how these animals act. But it is interesting for uh, reasons that will become apparent later when we talk about how these guys feed. So I know we focused on Australia for the last couple of weeks. We really have. Um, it has been very Antipodean over here. Yeah, uh, we're back in New Zealand again, um, which is one of my favorite places, as you may have guessed by now. Land of bizarre birds and uh, multiple reptiles and invertebrates. But this is a bird that sadly missed out on that list for a while now, actually. I can't believe we've not done this one sooner. We're going to be focusing specifically on, or we're going to be focusing on kiwis, but specifically the North Island uh, brown kiwi. Basically, there are five species of kiwi, and they all fall into the genus Apteryx, uh, which literally means without wings. Yeah, that's that's the that's the me that's the name meaning that I did know. I don't know where the word kiwi comes from, other than Maori, perhaps. Yeah. Um, or or at the very at the very least, possibly Polynesian. But yeah, I I knew um, uh, apteryx because that's a ancient Greek word. Mm, definitely. Um, well, you'd be right as well that kiwi is in fact a Maori word, 
Uh, generally, it's accepted to be sort of an imitation of their call. They, they've got quite a sort of a, a loud call. For, for it's a very, a very nice call, yeah. So as we were saying, apteryx meaning that they have no wings. They do actually have tiny, tiny wings. They're, they're there, but of no use whatsoever. But the kiwi is unique. It, it lives a unique life, purely only found in New Zealand, nowhere else in the world. And the birds themselves basically facilitate the same ecological niche as hedgehogs or badgers would in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, they spend oh, yeah. their lives on the forest floor, looking around for worms, insects, even small bits of fruit, um, and using that lovely long uh, beak to probe into the ground to sniff things out. Interestingly enough, something that I wasn't uh, completely aware of is their lifespan before looking into this. It's anywhere between 25 to 50 years of age. Wow. 50 years, that's a decent age for a bird like this. Um, but yes. most of New Zealand's birds do have quite long lifespans. And I think it is partly to do with the fact that New Zealand was a, well, still is a very isolated uh, place where birds were able to to uh, expand and do as much as they wanted, really. North Island brown kiwi, why, why am I more specifically interested in them out of all of the five species of kiwi? Um, that includes the North Island brown kiwi. Uh, the great mm. spotted kiwi, or rora, uh, the little spotted kiwi, the roai, and the toko eke, toko eke. Um, I probably butchered that one for all our Maori listeners there. Basically, with this particular species, the North Island brown kiwi, Apteryx mantellii, there are 35,000 individuals remaining, uh, and it is by far the most common kiwi. So uh, as much as it is the, the one that most people who would live in New Zealand would most likely have seen in the wild if they've been lucky enough to see one. It's also the kiwi that I first have encountered and uh, was absolutely captivated by these birds and also rushed to uh, Painton Zoo to go and see their one as well, which I found mm. today that they're actually now starting to do uh, keeper experiences to meet the kiwi. Wow. I know. It was very... Intri that's an interesting one. Yeah, I hmm. would love to uh, to certainly do that. It's so it's it is the most common species of kiwi, uh, and I say that common with inverted commas because well, there's not that many of them, but out of all the kiwi species, it is the most widespread. It lives in the the northern two thirds of the North Island, uh, and the North Island brown kiwi, even though it is considered the most common of all the kiwis, is still considered vulnerable uh, by the IUCN. Hmm. So they are. They are a species that is certainly under threat, and that will become apparent later. Let's have a look at a little bit of their evolution. What would what would you say is their closest relative, Aaron? Oh, you can't ask me that because I know the answer. Do you? Well, well actually, no, no, I don't know. I don't know the answer to who their closest relative is. I don't. I don't think. Um, I know what I know is what family they belong to. Okay. Um, well, what, what I am going I mean, to they go. They are a rat. I, I'll tell you that much. They are a rat. Yeah, that that that's what I was getting at. I know, I know that much. So, um, of the giant birds that the ratite family comprise—the emu, the ostrich, the cassowary—and even some of the extinct species as well, like the moa, which used to live in New Zealand, the elephant bird from Madagascar, um, various different uh, members of that family. Which one do you think it is most closely related to? Uh, I'm going to go with Rhea. Rhea. Interesting. Yeah. Well, you are you are wrong. 
Um, oh, right. Okay. The the traditional thought for a very long time was that they were, in fact, closest related to the Moa. Um, makes sense. They both live in the same country. They're both in the Ratite family, but they're not. They're closest I relatives. See, I can see how they got to that, though. Well, it makes it makes sense. They live in the same country. But it turns out that the relatives to the Moa came to New Zealand uh, a lot earlier than okay. the relatives of the Kiwi. The relatives of the Kiwi, um, due to recent DNA sequencing, uh, has basically yielded the conclusion that the Kiwi is actually more closely related to the extinct elephant bird of Madagascar. Okay. So that's quite a difference. And that means that at one point, these birds would have had the power of flight. And in fact, recent fossil evidence as well uh, has shown that Proapteryx, a bird from the Miocene deposits of the St. Bathans fauna, uh, found uh, that it was a smaller version of a kiwi and mm. probably capable of flight, supporting this hypothesis that the ancestors of kiwis reached New Zealand independently from the moas, uh, which were already large and flightless by the time that the kiwi appeared. I've just had a look at their family tree just to see how far off I, I am, and I could only have been further off if I said ostriches. I'm right at the other end because... Yep. My thinking was a lot of a lot of kind of a lot of animals, particularly marsupials, came to Oceania via South America, yeah, yeah, and yeah. and Antarctica, then Australasia, and then they, some of them went went back, which is where I thought of that that connection. But actually, like you say, if you if you lump kiwi in with elephant birds, the next closest are the emus and cassowaries, which again are in that part of the. Yes. The world. After that, it's Tinamus and Moa, and then it's then it's Rhea, and then the only one after that is the ostrich. So yeah, I was really far off. Yeah, it's it's quite amazing. Um, and mm. the the basically large flightless birds that were the Moas had had already established themselves in New Zealand before the Kiwis ancestors made it there, and then like with most birds in New Zealand, decided well we don't need to fly and uh, kept on the ground lifestyle and then took on their their modern day aspect of being essentially uh, avian badgers if you want to put it that way so before the arrival of humans in the 13th century or earlier uh, so the maori first and then european settlers uh, afterwards new zealand's only end, uh, endemic mammals were three species of bat uh, and this left that ecological niche um, in the other worlds would be filled with a diverse range of things like horses, mice, all sorts of different things. They were all taken up by birds uh, in New Zealand, as we've talked about before. And and it's basically been taken up by birds to a lesser extent, reptiles, things like that in, in New Zealand. But all of these niches have been left open and uh, Kiwis essentially fitted into this niche nicely and took on the role of uh, hedgehogs or badgers as we've said before, their highly developed sense of smell, which is unusual in birds. Most birds are are not great, but these are the only birds where their nostrils are at the end of their beak, as we've uh, said before. They, um, they eat small insects, invertebrates, grubs, you name it. There's a fantastic bit of footage with Attenborough where he's sitting on a beach in New Zealand uh, of a night watching these guys probing the sand 
for worms and for different crustaceans and things like that that they can find. They've even been known to eat small crayfish, small eels, and small amphibians as well. So they're not entirely picky. They will quite happily use that beak to uh, to catch relatively small stuff using that keen sense of smell, which you can see them probing into areas to find stuff. And that Attenborough clip, uh, you, you can see the Kiwis just sort of every now and again sort of blowing their noses to get rid of all the sand uh, out the end of yeah. their nose. <laughs> um, so this highly developed olfactory chamber and surrounding regions is their main sense to be able to find stuff. They've also got tiny little uh, hair-like feathers around their face that help with detecting things. Their sense of, uh, sense of vision is not great. They are... Well, pretty poor at finding things, uh, even though they come out during the dark. Although this appears to be a fairly recent development, something that's only happened since humans turned up and introduced predators to New Zealand. First off with things like uh, the Polynesian rats and dogs uh, with the Maori turning up and then with the Europeans turning up with stoats, cats, dogs, all sorts of different things. Um, but they appear to have become far more nocturnal because of this and it's thought that they would have been far more diurnal before uh before man being there so yet again another reason that we've changed uh new zealand's uh, ecosystem massively so breeding if if there is one amazing fact about kiwis that you should remember and it's one of probably the most outstanding facts about Kiwis, apart from the fact that they are related to the elephant bird of Madagascar, is that they have the largest egg to body size of pretty much any bird on the planet. Mm, if you have yeah. ever seen an x-ray of a Kiwi with an egg inside it, uh, you will be astounded and think, how on earth is that bird alive? So kiwi eggs can weigh usually up to a quarter the weight of the female. And that's usually uh, only one egg. It's laid per season. Believe me, if they tried to lay more than one, I think the bird might pop. Um, so even though they're roughly about the size of a chicken, uh, it's able to lay an egg that's six times the size of a chicken's egg. Uh, roughly equivalent if you were to put a kiwi's egg next to uh, a comparable sized bird egg is something like an emu egg maybe just a little bit squished, but um, about the same size. So when it comes to uh, to laying it, the uh, the female will, will lay the egg, but the male actually is the one in charge of incubating it, uh, except for in the great spotted kiwi, in which both parents are involved. Uh, the incubation period is about 63 to 92 days. Producing the egg, the a huge egg like this, places huge significant physiological stress on the female for the 30 days it takes to grow, inside of her developing the egg but she's got to eat three times her normal amount of food two to three days before the egg is laid uh, there is a little space left inside of the female for her stomach uh, and essentially she can't eat anything so she'll she'll eat as much as she possibly can before this little period beforehand because her stomach becomes squished by the egg which is a, a horrible thought to uh, to have your insides pushed up like that as, as much as they probably do. When it comes to the egg itself, it was believed as well that the large eggs were a trait of the larger moa-like ancestors that Kiwis had retained large eggs as part of an evolutionary neutral trait as they became smaller. It was thought generally that the bird evolutionary-wise could shrink 
from a much larger mower-like ancestor, but the egg had obviously not shrunk. This is before, obviously, the new research has shown that these guys are related to a much smaller uh, relation of the uh, the elephant bird. However, this research in early the 2010s uh, suggested that kiwis were descended from smaller flighted birds that flew to New Zealand, uh, and they gave rise to the kiwi, and that the large egg is instead thought to be an adaptation to precocity, which is a way of enabling the kiwi chick to hatch far more mobile and with yolk to sustain them for two to three weeks after the actual hatching. So the chick is spending more time in the egg. It's growing bigger. It's more developed and more advanced than most other birds would be. So that extra bit of investment put in by the parent to carry the egg for that amount of time and for the egg to be incubated means that the chick hatches a lot larger, is going to be far more able to survive and should hopefully be able to evade chick-eating flying predators when they emerge from the nest. So the nests that they make as well are actually sort of uh, burrows, usually just a, a, a deepish burrow where they'll incubate the eggs and where they'll hide away from predators. And with most uh, New Zealand's birds, their instinct when cornered or when they sense danger is to stand still. And that's an evolutionary adaptation to aerial predators, which were the main predators in New Zealand. Kind, any you know, large kinds of raptors like the harst eagle uh, and other types of raptor, not ground-based predators like uh, stoats and rats. So they really don't stand a chance when those animals turn up. Now, culturally, uh, the Maori traditionally believed that the Kiwi were under the protection of Tane Mahuta, uh, the god of the forest, uh, and they were used as mm -hmm. food, and their feathers were used for kua Kiwi ceremonial cloaks. And, and today, while Kiwi feathers are still used, these are gathered from birds that have died naturally through road accidents or predation and from captive birds, not obviously killed. Kiwi are no longer hunted by the Maori and they consider them to basically be the bird's guardians, which is yet another reason why I, I love the way that the Maori do conservation through their sort of traditional culture. They, they've realized, uh, this sounds very sort of white man telling them how they've done things, but th they've realized how their presence has impacted on the animals through generations and have changed their cultural ways of, of doing things to still have their, you know, their cultural views and, and, and ways of doing things to the fact that their, their culture is, is everything, you know, permeates through everything in, in New Zealand. And, and it's really, it's really nice to see that the animals themselves are held in such high regard along with the environment as well. If anything, the Maori are so much more guardians of, of, of the natural spaces of New Zealand than I think I've seen of any other sort of traditional culture of, of people, you know, uh, around. I mean, I mean, I'm saying that as, as someone who's only been to New Zealand or Australia, but it, it is something that I think, yeah, they do a really good job of there. And you obviously see some of these ceremonial cloaks in, in sort of, um, usually larger traditional things, but a lot of them do have fake feathers and things like that. For yeah, not everyone's wielding a an entire feather cloak from a kiwi because their feathers aren't exactly massive. They're um they're actually <laughs> tiny, 
tiny versions of emu feathers, basically, little double phyllo plumes. So I would imagine it would take an awful lot of Kiwis oh. to make a traditional Maori cloak. So, uh, yeah, it's a good thing that they're obviously, you know, taken from from things like roadkill and that, which unfortunately brings us to their threats. You may not have noticed, Aaron, but Kiwis can't fly. They have uh, underdeveloped uh, wings. Uh, I, I had noticed that, actually. Yeah. Uh, there is actually a very funny animation of a Kiwi jumping off, uh, a Kiwi planting trees in the side of a cliff so right. that they stick out. And then dropping off the cliff and pretending he's flying through the trees. <laughs> I think I've seen that. It's, yeah, it's a, it's um. Well, he's happy when it ends uh, his <laughs> life. But, uh, gets well, that one chance to fly. But thankfully, real kiwis <laughs> don't actually do that. So, uh, but no. yeah, kiwis obviously don't fly. They don't have the wings, and they don't have the sternum, the breastbone that um, would power flight. They've long since lost that. Like most members of the ratite family, they don't fly. So they have very underdeveloped um, muscles in their chest. Most of the muscles are based over the sort of the back end of the bird because they are leg heavy. They, they didn't skip mm-hmm. leg day like most of the ratites. They no. skipped one day. So um, this makes them particularly vulnerable to crushing bites because their chest is, is a little bit weaker than most other birds. Birds anyway ha- are susceptible to crushing bites from uh, from dogs and from large carnivores because of their their skeletons anyway. But the biggest threat to kiwi chicks and to um, to younger kiwis is stoats, and to adult kiwis it's dogs. Cats also kill kiwi chicks, ferrets as well, which I I will never get my head around. Who was the the absolute genius who thought I know I know what New Zealand needs stoats and ferrets let's take some of them there it sounds Absolute like the same madness yeah, yeah they don't really have like a, they don't idiocy. have a purpose they don't have a purpose oh, well stoats certainly don't you don't use a stoat for anything and uh, ferrets you certainly don't use their well uh, other than hunting with you don't and keeping them as a pet i guess you don't really use those for anything but ferrets are frequently known to kill kiwis so introduced mammals basically have a wider impact on them as well. Competition by rodents for similar food types uh, appears to delay the growth of kiwi chicks, uh, which increases pressure on their overall population. At some sites, uh, rats are food for stoats. Uh, When there are lots of rats, there are lots of stoats in the area, uh, and that makes it harder to control predators. And kiwi numbers um, are increasing in, in some areas. The Kiwi population has doubled every decade since massive predator control methods have come into place. Essentially, their threats are still there. I've, I've seen one or two of these uh, predator-free areas of, of, of New Zealand where they heavily, heavily will put down uh, traps to, to kill uh, or, or bait boxes to kill rodents um, to get rid of them because... They need to be got rid of on New Zealand. And in some areas, they are winning the fight. It mm. just needs to keep going. So other threats that, in, uh, that these guys have to face are habitat modification and loss, essentially uh, suburbia encroaching onto areas where these guys would live, or people using uh, areas of forest more and more for recreation. Motor vehicle strikes uh, as well are... Um, are a big problem. Habitat fragmentation leading to small population size and being cut off from each other. 
uh, as well as avian diseases like bird flu also pose a threat to these guys uh, and parasites that could end up re uh, reaching New Zealand in the future as well could threaten Kiwi numbers. Um, I don't actually have any information about how many Kiwi might have been affected by bird flu. I don't even know how badly it's been in New Zealand, uh, bird flu, but um, certainly would be something that a lot of places would be very worried about when it comes to uh, biosecurity is, is that exact fact. Uh, and that's because there are only 70,000 Kiwi left. And that's basically a loss of 2% of uh, unmanaged Kiwi every year. And that's around 20 birds per week that are being lost due to all of those different factors. Now, at the top of the piece, uh, you'll remember that I said that these guys were the most numerous of Kiwi species. Uh, and they, sorry, and they have around 35,000 individuals. So that's... Mm. Roughly half of all kiwis are North Island brown kiwis, but all wow. of the kiwi species that uh, come together and make up 70,000, they're all threatened or at the very least threatened. Some of them are endangered and critically endangered. They all, they all face those same threats. And there is a good chance that if they aren't managed, which the New Zealand government are, are very good at managing the kiwi populations because it is such an iconic bird. Um, as we discussed the other week, these guys lost out, unfortunately, to the Uteki um, Teki, the Australasian grebe for bird of the century in New Zealand. Now, that was whilst wow. you were away sick, Aaron. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> John, John Oliver got involved and the Puteki Teki took the, uh, the top spot for um, bird of the century in New Zealand by a <laughs> whopping amount. But Kiwis were certainly bound to come in second. And, um, well, I certainly think they should have come higher up the list. They certainly should have won mm -hmm. it, if anything. But anyway, that's the Kiwi, a bird that um, I've seen, well, in two places, once in a, uh, a collection in New Zealand. Unfortunately, didn't get to see them in the wild. Saw plenty of signs on the road saying slow down for Kiwis. And once at Painton Zoo. But, uh, yeah, huh. they are an absolutely stunning little bird. And... Ah, well, I, I think they deserve far more love. They are an awesome, awesome little bird. Um, and they're a ratite, which is like one of my favorite groups of birds anyway. So, Indeed. Yeah, you can't, can't get much better than a ratite. No. Hmm. So, shall we move into our emails for the week? Yeah, let's do it. Bing! You've got mail. Ooh, it's an email. Cool. Right, well, we're into our emails for this week and um well we we let it roll over uh last week from our picture competition um which i say competition where we've been pitting our pictures against each other uh to see who's going to come out on top uh that will be well that should be up and running by now i should have uh, very much started that but this week's question for you is if you dear listener could meet any person related to natural history be it alive or dead who would you want to meet uh aaron i think you probably know who i'd want to meet um begins with david attenborough and ends with david attenborough yeah uh, i'm i'm afraid my my answer is going to be very vanilla and it's it is david attenborough <laughs> as well it's i mean it's it's an obvious one really in so many ways um you know he is he is the the one and only when uh, when it comes to to natural history that a lot of people would want to meet 
Uh, I'd I'd love to have him on the podcast. That would be amazing. Very much so, yeah. Well, plain and simple, that one, uh, dear listeners, doesn't take much explaining. Um, But yes, let us know through our various different uh, social media channels where that will be going up for you guys to make your comments on and probably add to the list of people saying David Attenborough. So we shall see how that goes next week. Well, instead um, of, you would have Attenborough's army. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I do believe we have an email this week, Aaron. We do have an email this week. Well, it wasn't an email. It was a question uh, that, okay. was, that was uh, offered up. Uh, this one comes to us from Lewis. He's actually given us two, but we'll go over this one first. Uh, yeah, yeah. this week he says it's quite an interesting one it's a bit psychological okay Ooh. so lewis says do you think that a person's favorite animal is a reflection of themselves or their self-image i think probably more their self-image mm. um because well i don't know i think i think you develop a, the personality and then then you sort of weave other aspects into your personality so i think the animal becomes part of your image if anything i I think my favorite animal was my favorite animal at an age where none of this would have mattered (laughs) yeah i i think it was one of the first impressive animals i saw and it just took my breath away for for a kid and i don't remember the i don't remember it quite like in that much detail I just remember that I I was obviously I must have been impressed by it because it's remained the tigers remain my favorite like true this whole true. time and I I wouldn't say I see any characteristics of tigers in me I'm not I'm not stripy I'm not uh, I don't go out and pounce <laughs> on things and certainly can't leap the the way that no, they so can. You, you you developed the personality and the tiger fitted into your personality you didn't make it around the tiger. No, no, I just, I, I think I was just a like a, a three, four year old, I guess, and yeah, looked it and thought it was pretty. I'm, I'm greedy. I don't have one favorite animal. I, mm. I like too many different to, uh, to be able to pick. I like kakapos, wetters, um, hyacinth macaws, American and Chinese alligators, you know, uh, birches, barramundi. Arapaima, all these different, you know, these are all absolutely completely different and have nothing really that connect to anything, I would say, personality wise. No. <laughs> Nor on tree trunks or anything. So I would say that they are ones that I have picked up along the way that that I think I've woven into how I feel. I don't I don't think they influence me in any way, shape, or form. I don't sit there like a parrot and squawk at people. Um but yeah. I think it's it's a bit odd to say oh, you're a dog or a cat person or a a reptile person. You know, you you either gain a particular connection for an animal, but yeah, actually, that's something you know, that I've I I mean, I think people that would the people that know me would, in fact, I reckon people that know me and people that meet me but don't really know me would assume that I'm a cat person, but I'm actually. I'm not an anything person. Yeah, I have yeah, I, I have a list. I I think I've got like five favorite animals. Tiger is definitely the favorite, but on that list you've you've got polar bear. Um, and it's, it's, I don't. I really don't think that. Yeah, I I don't prefer one one animal over, over another. Yeah. I um, 
I, I'm just an animal person. I'm, I'm, I just in, enjoy animals. I'm at peace around animals. Indeed. Hmm. Well, I mean, I interesting question though. We can give it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, that pretty much brings us to the point in the show where I get to talk about our fantastic ways that you guys can help us out. Um, the first is obviously doing what you're currently doing, which is listening to us podcasts live and die on uh, word of mouth and you guys have done an amazing amount our numbers have gone up recently uh, of late we're Wonderful. now over twenty five thousand individual plays of episodes so that's impressive in itself Twenty five thousand plays of individual episodes so yeah all all, all told over twenty five thousand plays uh, of episodes wow so that's it's quite an achievement aaron we've, we've you know we're doing well well, um, it's, it, but, it's a pleasure to do it for people. It's it's good fun. It's nice to know that someone's out there listening too. Mm. Well, some people have have gone even further and have gone and become one of our patreons, which is one of the ways that you can support us. Aaron, who are we saying a big thank you to this week? Um, I haven't I haven't prepared a voice. Name something. Yoda. <laughs> okay, I, Yoda, I will do. Big thank you to Patreons we have. Chelsea McKee, Connie P, Jen Greenhall, and Thoktober. May the force be with you. <laughs> Very good. Well, there you go. If you want <laughs> if you want to add your name to that list, um, you can do so uh, by becoming one of our Patreons. Uh, and their support helps us out immensely. Um, in fact, directly responsible for our ability to go out today and well, record our episode uh, for New Year's where we've gone fossil hunting. Um, so a big thank you to those guys. But money isn't everything, uh, and you can help us out in the most simplistic way possible by liking, subscribing, um, telling a friend, telling an enemy, shouting at uh, a bunch of New Zealand's birds, uh, but do it at a distance, don't disturb them. And um, basically spreading the word of us being out there, liking, subscribing, interacting with us, all those different things that you can do, all do an immensely amazing job. So a big thank you from myself and Aaron and everyone on the podcast. Yes, thank you actually. <laughs> oh dear, he's stuck in Yoda. <laughs> that sounds wrong. <laughs> uh, and that just brings us to say, um, well, uh, that's the, pretty much the end of this week's episode. So a big thank you, Aaron. Welcome, you are. I wondered where you were going. Yeah, whether that was going to continue as Yoda. Uh, and a big thank you to you at home for listening. And we'll see you next time here in the Natural History Cupboard. Bye. Down to the beach, I'm strolling. Where the seagull hooked at my head. But, but I say seagull. <laughs> Stop it <Stop> now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.